Welcome to this episode of Safe Home Podcast for struggling teens and their families finding their healing path. I'm Beth Syverson, a mom of an 18-year-old son, Joey, who's been dealing with addiction and mental health issues for several years. I'm walking beside him as he struggles with his recovery while I work on my own personal growth and healing. Today's guests are Dana DelVal and Maz Mary, a married couple from North Dakota who are bringing alcoholism out into the light with their podcast, Daily Dose of Dr. Mary and DD. They are here on Safe Home Podcast to talk about how addiction affects everyone, not just the person struggling with addiction. They, like our family, believe that the opposite of addiction is connection, and they are aiming to destigmatize addiction so we can all heal. Welcome to Safe Home, Dana and Maz. Glad you're here. Thank oh, you. thanks for yeah. having us. Nice to be here. Yes. Well, and it's so great to find people who are open about their struggles with addiction. So many people are closed off about it and don't want to talk about it. But and it's even less common, I think, to find a married couple willing to talk about how it affects your relationship. So before we dig into the details of what happened and how it all happened, what motivated you to share your story on the World Wide Web, you know? That's a big step. I actually think it was because things had been bad for a number of years at our house. And then when Maz got sober, things got very, very good. And my social media feed went from him being largely absent to suddenly we were traveling back to England to see his family a number of times a year. And we were taking great trips and we had this really glorious, empty nester lifestyle. And people started writing to me and saying, like, what's going on at your house that everything is so great? And I could tell that there was certainly happiness that, that my life was happy, but there was also this weird, like, kind of tinge of criticism. And I thought, oh, people don't understand what we've been through because we were very, very yeah. private about it. Uh. And we need to reveal the dark so that the light makes sense. Uh. That's really how it came about. That's awesome. So you're one of those Pinterest families that looked perfect on Facebook and all that, right? You know, that's a great way to say yeah. it, Beth. We just decided to actually, you know, we kind of decided that people needed to know we actually had a B-side. Yeah. Okay, good, good. Something that doesn't get shown on Facebook. I think that's so great because I think everybody has a B-side. Yes. And if we just talked about it a little bit more and made it not so shameful or... yeah. To take the shame away completely. It's nothing to be ashamed about. And just talked about it. I think everyone would be in better shape. I think we'd be getting better services from healthcare and the government. And I think that there'd just be less trauma all around, around the piece of addiction. I yeah, agree. Absolutely. Well, Dana was the driving force because I was coming off of my third year anniversary, my sobriety anniversary. So Dana asked me if we could just start talking about it. She said, well, how about we launch it on your third year anniversary? And, I, and she asked me to think about it. And I did. And I thought, you know what? Why not? Everyone at work knew I was struggling with alcohol. I went into treatment. I kept my job. Okay, um, good. What, so, what do you do? Well, I'm a biology professor and chair of the department. So, you know, I kept my job. I didn't have a DUI. If anyone thinks of an alcoholic, it wouldn't be me because, you know, I, I never I haven't been arrested, never got a DUI, okay. had a job. You know, we weren't bankrupt. So you were functioning very well. Yeah. Okay. And so everyone at work already knew. So you yeah. didn't have to jeopardize your job to go on the internet. That's good. Yep. That's good. Well, I love that decision. And um, our podcast was Joey's decision or original idea. And I just jumped on it because I'm like, yes, other families need to hear this stuff. And so they don't feel so alone Yep. and know that there's resources and, you know, 
people to talk to and all that, all that good stuff. Well, how long have you been together? How did you meet? He doesn't sound like he's from Fargo. I'm just going to say. Uh, <laughs> no, so I, I came to work at NDSU um, originally. So North Dakota State University. And I lived in an apartment building with a mutual friend of Dana's. So, you know, this was before Tinder. So we actually were introduced <laughs> to each other. Oh, yeah. Probably the last couple ever to be so, actually. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Peter said to me one night, he said, What, why aren't you dating anyone? I said, Well, this town's full of blondes, and I only really like redheads. So, he phoned <laughs> Dana up, and I talked to her on the phone, and then we met a few weeks later, and that was it. Yeah, Very so, good. so that was uh, 2001. So, we've been together a really, really long time, married mm. for 14 of those 20 and a half years. Wow. Okay. And at what point did alcohol become a problem? Mm, that's a great question, Beth. Weird thing for me is I, I went through college, undergrad, my first job after I got my PhD, and I never had a problem with alcohol. Somewhere, you know, in, in my mid-30s, I started to drink more than I thought I was, and then I started to... I didn't even know I was doing it, but I was lying about it. I kept saying, I'm only having one drink. That's fine. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, but, you know, it's embarrassing now that, you know, being sober for five and a half years now, you know so much more about how much trouble I was in, but I didn't even know it, you know, because uh -huh. I was always, you know, I could always justify it. And then I didn't realize I'd actually become an incredibly bad liar, but as one of the symptoms of being an addict, you think you can talk your way out of anything, and you just can't. But that's what I started to do. So I think it happened to me slowly, and then I kind of just weirdly gave into it. Yeah, sure. Always it's, thinking I'd be fine. Not, it's not really a problem. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. It's like putting the frog in the cold water and yeah. gradually increasing the heat. You, the frog doesn't know yeah. what's going on. It's just it's so gradual. You get inured to it, and... You just keep on going. Uh, did you notice more than Maz was noticing, Dana? Yes, I certainly knew something was really wrong. And I would say, actually, that I can look back and, and understand that almost as soon as we got married, he was drinking more than I believed he was, certainly more than he told me he was. So, I mean, we were married nine years before he got sober, it wasn't bad for nine years, but it was bad for, mm, no, no, it was bad for five yeah. or six of them at least. <laughs> yeah. As I said, yeah. you know, you don't think it's as worse as you think. Yeah, he just, sure. That's he was really absent. He yeah. was never abusive. He was never mean. He just was utterly absent. He kind of lived in the basement and my son and I, of lived upstairs and we yeah. we occasionally had some really nice moments which was enough to keep me thinking something's wrong but we we've got to get back to what we had yeah. so it was it was really complicated and terribly sad yeah yeah so were you drinking like every night blacking out that kind of thing or yes i don't think i was well, well I, i'm always mad i almost always managed to get into bed Okay. And then get up. But there was a few times that I actually did stay downstairs. No. he. It's super interesting. I mean, everybody's got their version of the same story, whether addiction is part of your life or not. But I would say 
three nights a week, he didn't come to bed. Oh, okay. And I, and certainly if we were going to watch a movie, he might be asleep before the credits were done. I mean, <laughs> I, I used to joke and say I was married to a newborn. He would sleep for 20 minutes, be up for 10 minutes, sleep for a half hour. Be, he was sort of in and out of presentness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all the time when he was home. So he says, and I'm sorry to talk about you like you're not here. He says, you know, I was doing my job and I was doing a good job in my job. And that's true. But he was doing a terrible job at home. Yeah. No, the I price that, that we paid yeah. was yeah. his, he worked so hard to be present at work. I like to think of it as, you know, I must have worn myself out trying sure. to be yeah, normal to hold yourself together. Work, holding yourself together so. Sure. Sure, that yeah. takes a lot so, of So energy. if actually, if anyone asks me, you know, people have asked me all the time, well, what, what was your starting point? I don't know. It was kind of weirdly gradual. Yeah. And then yeah. it just... Had him. Ha- had me. Yeah. Yeah. At, that's the danger of addiction because you can't, like, mark the spot where this is where it happens. Yeah. And, and then I was in the denial and then, you know... Yeah. Then I... Yeah. Well, then you were in the need. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it, it yeah. moved quickly Absolutely. from, I enjoy this, I enjoy more of this, to I need this. I mean, there was yeah. no question. He was drinking in the mornings by the time he oh. stopped drinking. So oh, it was yeah. a real problem. That's for sure. I think your story is really important for people to hear because people think alcoholic and they think DUIs, like you said. Yeah. They think jail time. They think can't hold a job. They think falling down drunk. And a lot of people on alcohol and other stuff too, just sort of exist. They keep everything somehow pulled together, but it's not a real authentic life at all. It's, it's uh, disabling. Uh, even if you can kind of hold it together. Yeah. It's a great way to say it. It's a good way of saying it. Yeah. That's really great. Now, Dana, when you kind of realize, Oh, this is not good. Did you, Go into fix it mode? Did you try to fix him? Did you think about leaving? Yes, to all of that. Because I did not understand alcoholism, I grew up in a really candy land household. Nobody drank. <laughs> I never saw anything like that. I just thought I could kind of shake it out of him, that I could yeah. find the right words. I mean, I'm a writer, words, I'm yes. an actor. I thought I can, I can say the right thing that will make him wake up and go, oh, this is a problem. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what, what you learn when you go through this process is, A, you can't save anybody else. I did not save Maz Mary. I oh, yeah. stayed around for Maz Mary to save himself. Oh, you yeah. did help. I, yeah, but, I, but you had to ultimately make that decision. And Beth, you know that. You'd save your yep. son if you could. Oh, God, I tried. Yeah. I've tried everything. Yep. It's exhausting. Yeah. We wish we could just wave a wand or give you the words or one. Yes. one I always just thought, if I just phrase it in a certain yes. way, yes. it will come. It will be like, oh, yeah, I never thought of that. Yes. But mm, it never happens. And so I tried every emotional ploy I could. Crying, screaming, cajoling, pleading. Mm-hmm threatening. I tried drinking with him some. Uh-huh. I, tr- I mean, I tried everything uh-huh. because I really did think that I could fix it. Like, yeah. like sometimes you'll see old movies where a woman is hysterical and a man will slap her in the face oh, yeah. and that, like brings her <laughs> back to the present. I'm not advocating for abuse, but I'm saying I felt like I just needed to find the right slap that yeah, would that make him wake up. up. 
Yep. I totally can relate to that. If anyone knows of what that would be, let me know. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think, think it's called self-realization. I think my body yeah. gave me my own slap. Yeah. I don't know if you would call it lucked out, but yeah. your body said, hold on there, buddy. We're going to set you aside for a little yeah. bit and you can have some time to think about this. What happened with you? So I, I think this is what happened. And I think these two things are connected. So I was walking into work and this was a late January and I slipped on the ice in the loading dock and whacked my head and I, I detected most of my face with my hand which swelled up like a balloon. One of my work colleagues drove me to work and phoned Dana yeah, to, the emergency room. to the emergency room and I got 10 stitches in my head so I went home for that day and then a couple of days after that or like four or five days after that I just got this nosebleed at work and I had to cancel my evening class and I went home and it wouldn't stop bleeding. So I it bled through dinner, Dana went to bed, I went downstairs, and I just kept bleeding. So at about two in the morning, I actually went in and got Dana out of bed and said, look, you, you need to take me to the emergency room. And I really had tried to clean up the batting because I was just bleeding everywhere, and apparently it was appalling. But Dana took me oh, wow. to the ER. I think it was about, was it three in the morning, something like that? Middle of the night. Yeah. So they stopped, my, they stopped my nosebleed, they cauterized my blood, and then I, I had a blood test. And they said, well, you're staying in here because there's something wrong with you. Uh-oh. So they kept asking me all these questions over and over again, and I was in total denial. You know, how much do you drink? Yeah, one or two drinks, that's it. Um, <laughs> so finally they said to me, well, here's the thing. You're either lying to us or you have leukemia. Oh, wow. We need to do a bone biopsy, and I thought... <laughs> Do the biopsy because oh, really? nothing. Okay. I don't have a problem. So I let them do a bone biopsy on me. They were scheduling me to do a liver and a kidney biopsy, which they never did. And then I was—I don't know what happened. I was, they were, I was put in a medically induced coma because I had a psychotic break. This was over the course of four days. Because I was in wow. hospital for three days and I wasn't drinking, oh. so I went into complete withdrawal. Oh, yeah, because you didn't let them know. Ah, yeah. And that's not okay to do, to cut yourself off of alcohol no. right away. Oh, but wow. mercifully, I was in a hospital when this happened, so they put that's me in a medically induced coma, and then I, they woke me up six days later. Wow. And I slowly oh started coming to my senses. Yeah, it, it was shocking. They told me when they finally got him into that coma, they thought it would take... 18 to 24 hours for the alcohol to leave his system. So he was in intensive care and 24 hours after they first put him under, they started to bring him up and he started to convulse. He wasn't having wow. seizures, but he was convulsing. And so they put him back under and they said, we'll try again in 24 hours. They did that for five days. Wow. Yeah. It oh was gosh, she must have been terrified. Yeah. It was pretty terrible. Um, and I, I just want to add this because it doesn't get talked about enough. And I, it was above and beyond the fact that I felt like I was watching this man who I had been with for the great majority of my adult life die in front of me. And now I knew that it was alcoholism. Mm -hmm. I was overwhelmed with the idea of what this was all going to cost. Oh, I mean, we yeah. had health insurance, but I didn't have any idea if, if alcohol treatment, mm. if, if this kind of hospital oh. stay would be covered. And so things were so bad between us at this point that I really didn't have much of an emotional attachment to Maz, but I was obsessed with fear 
that we were going to lose our house, that all the things that I had worked so hard for, that we had worked so hard for, were going to go away. And I, I knew that even if somehow he could get this figured out, if we had to declare medical bankruptcy and we lost our house, I, I knew there was no way I could get past that. I mean, I just, I just could not have done that. And so that was a, that was a huge weight Mm. on my shoulders. And I think one thing that doesn't get talked about very often is just that the complexity of watching someone else go through this, that you love. Yes. Um, It's terrible. And I I know I'm talking to someone who gets it. It's truly terrible in a way that I don't know what else is this bad. It is really terrible. The helplessness. Yeah. And like you said, the worry about money. It's like on top of everything else, we have to go, well, fuck, how are we going to pay for this? Yeah. And uh, we've been really lucky. Our insurance has paid for things, although the things have not helped. So the, the, what I would really love to do is if he was willing is to send him to a year long treatment center that deals with adoption and attachment trauma, specifically attachment issues. But there are places like that. Yes. Yeah. They raise wild Mustangs, you know, it's like this awesome place. And, but I don't have $150,000. Yeah. And so why, why the money thing has to be wrapped all in it is just, it's infuriating. And sometimes when we've been at different psych hospitals and things, I, I see these kids and ours was taken care of with our insurance company, but I guarantee you not everybody's was. And to see these parents yeah. worrying so much about their child and what are we going to do? How are we going to pay for this? Just it's destabilizing in so many ways. And we got to fix our healthcare system. It's ridiculous. We absolutely do. And we've got to figure out how to think through alternative addiction rehab facilities as well. Mm -hmm. Certainly the one that Maz went to, was a very traditional facility and it worked for him, but it doesn't work for so many people. I didn't know any of this. It was the local Mm -hmm. one that I went to. And I, Uh with what you learn afterwards, you know, we had, some guests in our show, one of them was a North Dakota state senator. He's one of the committee he's on is revamping the state mental hospital. Oh, wow. And there's this big thing about do they keep it where it is or do they have smaller facilities throughout uh-huh. the state? And uh-huh. then we just got talking. I said, you know what helped me was the fact that I was in a treatment center in the town I lived and it made yeah. me feel better. Well, yeah. And your wife could come visit you. And I was 47 when I went into rehab. So... Apart from the five older other people who were older than uh-huh. me, there it was full of kids. But you know, they would, they'd come from over the states. One of them came from you know, like Utah or something. Oh wow! Because little old Prairie St. John in Fargo, North Dakota, actually had a good success rate. Wow! It was about it was above ten percent. Yeah, yeah, that's what it, that's about what they are, isn't it? They just expect it to be a revolving door. Well, yeah. So you were one of the ten percent. Good job. <laughs> so, you, yeah, you recovered at the hospital enough to go to rehab. You went straight from the hospital to rehab. Is that how yours worked? Yep. On his forty seventh birthday, I drove him to rehab. Happy birthday to you! Yeah. Wow. Well, I, oh I think we have to tell this story because it, it was such a profound moment. I had gotten incredibly sick, and just I think from the stress of it all, and uh, I went to pick him up from the hospital, and the nurse made me put on a mask. And I remember at the time feeling like, wow, 
this is terrible. I mean, who could have anticipated Mm. that, you know, three years later, that would just become our regular life. But anyway, (laughs) um, I picked him up. I was incredibly sick. We got to Prairie St. John. We were waiting to check him in. I fell asleep. They, they woke me up. We went in to check him in and the woman asked him his date of birth. And he said, 216-1970. And she said, well, that's today. And he said, yeah, what a way to turn 47, yeah. huh? And she Aww. said, but what a way to start your 48th yeah. year. She was absolutely Oh, nice. Right. Yeah. It was That's just, a good way to look at it. Yeah, and I remember sitting there thinking, oh, my gosh, what if, what if this is the start of something positive? It was what? just really yeah. an unbelievable moment. Oh, and it ended up that way for you, which is great. It that did. it did turn into something positive. It did. Very good. Did they have some sort of magic trick at that rehab or was it just the concoction of some therapy, some groups, some talking, some reflection and being away from your regular routine? Yeah, it was reflection we had all every morning. We just, okay. we had hard, hard, my, my uh, counselor, bless her, she was amazing. She had to hand me my, my ass on a plate to me once, um, okay. which helped because I was kind of, for about the first week, I was still sort of. Yeah, McCarthy fits himself. Yeah. So uh-huh. she brought Dana in without telling me. So Dana talked to my group and just laid mm-hmm. it all out. And that day was my turning point. Okay. Because she gave me an assignment to do and I didn't do it. And I then she screamed at me. And, and part of my brain was going, dude, what are you doing? You, you sound like one of your students. Like, I, said, <laughs> I, actually, I think I may have actually said I didn't have time to do it. Yeah. Which she went, that's a lie. I was asked to leave the room. Dana had a long conversation with me afterwards, and it was that moment. That's when I thought, you know what? I really do need help. Okay. And that's when it started good. for me. Well, I'm glad that, that that woman kind of did that to you because that, kind of, that was kind of your wake up then, huh? Well, yeah, the medical situation probably, and then being yeah. forced to face the actual truth of what's going on. I think that, that a lot of parents of teens, their kids lie all the time. And I'm like, yep, they do. They lie because they do not want to disappoint you. They're lying to themselves. Yeah. If they're addicted, they're lying. to. It's just like natural, just like comes out. And so to see that lying and that denial as a coping mechanism, it's not a, a sinful kind of naughtiness. It's a coping there. You're not even admitting it to yourself until you did. That's so smart and so true, Beth. I think one of the really hard things about living in and with addiction is just exactly what you said. The lying. I mean, Maz would tell me lies that were so stupid that I would be incredulous that they would be coming out of this brilliant man's mouth. They made sense to me at the time. You start to doubt your own sanity because the lies are so stupid. There's just, you can't believe this is your life. Yeah. My counselor, Joanne Spearing, bless her. She once said to me when I was in rehab, you know what? I don't want to hear from you ever again. She says, I don't want to hear the word but come out of your mouth in a sentence. And I can honestly say in five years, six months, one week and four days, I may have said the word but maybe twice. That's not very many times. Good job. (laughs) (laughs) I started listening to what I was saying to myself and I... I had one of those, what are you doing moments? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And in conjunction with one of, we, we went to see a group therapist who actually said to me, he said, I know you're going to be okay, he said, because you're lucky, because you're a late onset alcoholic. 
Oh, I you, had, you didn't start so I young. had my successful teenage 20, 20s where I didn't have an addiction that I could yeah. think about how... Who you had been, who, who, who right. I've been and who I wanted to be again. Yes, exactly. My son does not have that. And it terrifies me because he started when he was 12, we think. Wow. We didn't know it for a couple of years. So he does not remember that identity forming adolescence. He yeah. doesn't have that. And it's going to be extra hard for sure. You yeah. at least, you went through all the way through school and everything. Yeah. You, you had all sorts of great memories and remembered life could be normal. And the longer people can hold off an addiction, if you have any sort of choice in the matter, mm-hmm. <laughs> the better. if parents can help their kids avoid getting deep into the substances, I know it's so hard and kids want to experiment, but the longer they can put it off, the better. Yeah. See, the thing was, like, you know, we used to get a party. We used to sit down and drink. And like three of us sure. would drink, a, yeah, when I was 20, 21, three of us would sit down and drink a bottle of whiskey together. Uh-huh. But then I wouldn't drink anything for weeks afterwards. Right. It was like a one-time party thing. And then I knew it was a drink. You know, it was, it was a, a special moment. And then, you know, every now and then I'd go out and have a beer, really, honestly. Uh-huh. And then I'd go weeks without drinking anything. And so how that uh-huh. flipped to me literally drinking a bottle of Jim Bean a day, I don't really know how that happened. Wow. So, Dana, do you have any addictions as well? I know not alcohol, uh, Candyland and all, but mm-hmm. caffeine, or is there any addiction that you can somehow relate with Maz about? You know, it's funny. I joke about this a lot on our show, but it's kind of no joke. But I also don't want to I don't want to minimize real addiction. You know what special K bars are, Beth? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, I mean, you kind of have to be from the Midwest to know what a special K bar is. But it's um, this peanut butter, corn syrup, cereal concoction with chocolate on top. The, all the major food. Groups yeah. Right there. I, <laughs> I could eat a pan of those, make myself sick, come back and eat another pan of them. I mean, I... I have some kind of unnatural obsession with special K bars. I've never made them because I absolutely cannot. And so, no, I don't have any legitimate addiction, which I feel profoundly grateful for. But Uh I certainly, I think there's nobody who doesn't have something that becomes the thing that lives in their mind. I mean, you can't go to treatment for special K bars. Right, I don't right, need right. to go to treatment for special K bars because but I manage can... it, but I understand feeling out of control about them. Yeah. So you do understand his, his cravings and his yeah, uh, yes, feeling in a, in a very small way. Yeah. Another thing I'm blessed with too is uh, when I woke up from my coma and started thinking about what I mostly wanted out of, well, well, what I wanted out of life was to be me again and to stay married. I didn't swap one addiction for another. You know, that happens so often. Everyone except for me in my rehab unit were chain smoking cheap cigarettes, mm-hmm. and my roommate mm-hmm. was coming off meth, alcohol, and cannabis. Mm-hmm. So, if you, I don't know if you've ever been in a room of someone who's sweating out methadone who's a chain smoker, that smell Oof. will haunt me for the rest of my life. Oh my gosh. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that's that's bad. Well, congratulations for not grabbing something else. I uh, I know smoking is a really common one. I had some associations about in my first year of, of not drinking, and Dana was fantastic about this. So it was so I got sober in February, February the first, two thousand seventeen. Mm-hmm. That Christmas, we had our first log fire with the season, and Dana said to me, "What do you miss, Mazzy?" Or you know, she asked me quite legitimately if I miss drinking. I said, "You know what I miss right now? When we used to have a fire." 
you used to have a Bailey's or a Feedies. Uh-huh. So Dana immediately went online and found the ingredients for non-alcoholic Feedies and then made one, and it was fantastic. Nice. Okay. So, you, know, you didn't fondle need the alcohol to yeah. whatever flavor that is. I was going to say about the special K bars that luckily special K bars aren't in every single commercial and every single sporting event and everywhere you go, Absolutely. every neighborhood bar and, you know, alcohol is just so prevalent in our culture. It's ridiculous. And it's just a given that if you're going to a dinner party, you'll drink. If you're going to a sporting event, you'll drink. Yep. If you're going out to the theater, you'll drink. If you're go- I mean, yep. it's just astonishing how expected it is and also how kind of not okay it is to not drink. I mean, it yeah. is fine, but you have to decide to be fine with somebody, you know, if you're a woman saying, well, what are you pregnant or yeah. asking yeah. all yeah. these yeah. insane yeah. questions that A, are nobody's business and yeah, B, absolutely. what's it to you? There's two things I've noticed. One, big, well-established alcohol companies make high-end whiskeys sexy. Oh, yes. But I watch the English Premier League on the TV, and they are actually, in their adverts, they are really pushing non-alcoholic beer. Oh. And so now, is, is that the, soccer? Yeah. What we would call soccer? And so are the Grand Prix. <laughs> like, the Australian Grand Prix this year, they actually, the advertising campaign was Melbourne, okay. spelt with the zero zero from Heineken Zero in the middle of it. And every placard oh. that those race cars went by, all of them just said Heineken zero zero. Okay. So they really, yeah, alcohol is in a lot of adverts, but they are actually trying to normalize it's coming. non-alcoholic yeah. beverages too. I, it's such a minority of people that just don't drink yes. for one reason or another. It's so strange. And alcohol is one of the most dangerous substances of all of it. I mean, people, you know, heroin, okay, cocaine, alcohol. I think it's worse. I mean, it causes so much da- damage and danger. It would be really interesting to know in this, you know, ongoing great debate of should we just legalize all drugs and see what happens? Because then you could monitor them and keep them safe and tax them and all those things. I mean, on one hand, I think, yes, we should, because the black market is so dangerous and, and yeah. people are lacing things and all of that. But on the other hand, if you look at the rise of alcoholism because it's so accessible and it doesn't seem to matter that it's heavily taxed and it, all these things. It's scary to think about, well, would, would the rate of heroin addicts go through the roof if everybody could just literally go to a store and buy heroin? I don't know. Yeah. Is, is it as addictive as yeah. alcohol? I mean, there's just so many huge questions around it, but I think your point of it being among the most dangerous is really spot on. And my gosh, you only need to walk about six feet from any business district and you're in a liquor store. Everywhere, everywhere. And here in Southern California, every other store is a pot shop. Oh, yes. Because it's legal here. So that doesn't help. I mean, I'm very pro-legalization, but my God, when you're a kid trying to quit and having pot shops everywhere, and good Lord, out here they deliver it to you. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. Probably yeah. long term, it will prove to be a good thing. But in the short term for families trying to keep people clean, it's hard. I know. Yeah. Now, have either or both of you worked on whatever was underneath all of that 
uh, addictive behavior? Were, were you trying to stuff something down? Were you not dealing with some sort of trauma? Or it, was it just the alcohol got a hold of you? I think it was just the alcohol got hold of me. I, mm -hmm. I really, I mean, I've been thinking about this for years. I can't really think of anything else. It sounds like the way it happened to you, just kind of slowly, more and more and more, like it does. Wow. So when you quit drinking, went through rehab for how long? 30 days? About, yeah, yeah four and a half 30 weeks. Days. Yeah. Then was everything just smooth sailing after that? Or did you guys have to learn how to relate to each other and you? Or? I think we kind of had to, what do you think? I think we had to, we got off to a good start, but we had to... We to get back into we it. certainly had had things we needed to get through, and I think that's another thing that doesn't really get talked about is the actual addict has been through a program, might have yeah. um, treatment plans, might have twelve step programs. They're going to all those kinds of things. They've sort of developed a rolodex of tips and tricks, and yes. and I had none of that. None. They didn't give you of any that. support. Oh shoot! No. So I mean, I I went to a few Al-Anon meetings during COVID. So three and a half years into Maz's sobriety, that really did not resonate for me. I really had nothing. So wow. I felt like Maz came home, and if it were a race, which it's not, but if it were a race, Maz was way ahead of uh -huh. me because he'd already had four weeks of talking through. Yeah. You know, yeah. his shame and his guilt and his sadness yeah. and all that. And I had none of that. You know, I was going to uh, AA meetings twice a week. Yeah. yeah. And, oh, and okay. I had to really figure out how to have him back home, how to huh. manage my own insecurities around it, how to work through the trauma that, that I had really developed in the years that he was drinking. Sure. Because it is traumatic. I, I don't it care is. if it isn't super abusive and all those things. It's traumatic to live with yeah. someone who's using a substance. No matter what. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. So when we have kids that are in treatment, it's really kind of inferior, but they did try to have like parents support, family meetings, blah, blah, blah. So they didn't have anything like that for spouses, huh? Is there any sort of group out in the internet? Like I'm, I'm sure that there are. In fact, it's interesting, Maz and I both are doing some training with an online group called Ignited Recovery, IGNTD oh. Recovery. And it's really a whole platform started by oh. Dr. Adi Jaffe in Los Angeles to oh. do addiction treatment rehab differently. So it's not oh, wow. about... It's not AA or the 12 steps. And it's not about absolutely stopping all substance abuse. It's, oh, um, I love that. Yeah. It's moderation. And, re and reduction. A lot of them, their goal, the, the, the ultimate goal of it is to get people to be alcohol or drug free. For a lot of people. But being but accountable people... and setting boundaries and keeping them and slowly yeah. coming back. And then the idea is, you know, with AA, if you lapse or relapse, then you've got to start again. Yeah, you're all done. Yeah, you've got to start all over and people go, well, fuck it, I'm done. Right. I can't do this. Yep. So, yeah, I agree with that harm reduction model. You know, all of us would love our loved ones to be sober for the rest of their lives, period. Yeah. But it, it's probably not going to happen. And why don't we just teach everyone how to be safer? Yes. And 
be in radical acceptance of whatever our loved one is going through and meet them where they're at. I love uh, it. Sounds, I'm going to go look that up right now. This is one of the, the top key words for this entire program. Well, top two words, radical acceptance. You just said it yourself. Yeah. That's what they're geared towards. So oh, okay. at any rate, I bring that up because I'm going to start working with families. Oh, good um, for you. Yeah. It's just the same problem, but from the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, for sure. It's not just the person who's addicted that has the problem. It is a family issue. We say that all the time on our show. And you guys need support. Everybody needs support in different ways and together probably too. Yeah. So are you hanging up your shingle yet, Dana? Or are you? I'm, I'm just still early in the training. In but, training. Uh-huh. but the uh-huh. other thing that I think is true is you really need to know what part you played in it. As a family member, yeah. I didn't shove alcohol down Maz's throat, mm-hmm. but I was a participant in some pieces of it intentionally and unintentionally. Yeah. And you have to reconcile with that if for no other reason than the idea that if you don't, the power balance is way off because you can sort of take the moral high road and say, well, I'm not the one who screwed all this up. That was you. That's not true. If you want to find harmony and balance and a true relationship, you really have to be willing to hold the mirror up to yourself. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Not that we caused it, but we can influence behaviors incredibly for the good or the bad. And it's a system that works together, you know, and Joey, our son was in a dysfunctional system before when he started using drugs and the drugs, honestly, it fixed up a lot of stuff for him. It's it's like, okay, well that worked for you at least for, for a little bit. And then it kind of goes out of control. I think that's really smart to really look at everybody and not to blame or to keep score at all, but for everybody to work on themselves. I always say in the intro, I'm walking beside Joey and not, um, not wagging my finger at him at all. Just we're all yes. working on our own stuff. Well, well here's, here's a couple of things I've noticed about AA, um, the 12 steps, the 12 promises. Only one of them is about not drinking. The mm-hmm. other 11 are really good advice that everyone could pay attention everybody, to. Everybody, yes. Yes, it's just personal growth, right? Yeah. 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 And people get stuck. They get stuck, you know, with trauma or with denial or wanting to block difficult feelings. But if we can work through those without grabbing the substances, that is ideal. Or without shaming someone. I mean, it's it's, shame is an easy, low hanging fruit place to go when you're frustrated or mad or disappointed. And it just doesn't serve anybody. Nobody does better with shame. The best piece of advice I ever got was from my original counselor, a guy called Rod, who said to me, being sober is easy. You don't drink. Staying sober is hard. And if you remember that you can talk to people who will help you, you should be okay. Yeah, getting that support, that's so critical. So have you stayed with the 12 steps or have you found other programs like this one that you're involved in now? I've actually just known AA and then we're getting into, we're both doing the training. I'm going to be an accountability coach. And and Dr. Jaffe's really interested in that because he wants me to come in as one of those, hey, AA work for me, but Uh let's talk about this and AA together. So there's a lot of fascinating stuff that's involved and ignited. There's a couple of things I'm going to have to get used to. When I, talk, when, I, when I talk to people and they start talking about 
oh, I only, I only had three drinks this week. I've seen it. What? <laughs> and I've got to remember, it's a reduction. Yes, that's so not a... Oh, yeah, you lot are still drinking. Oh, yeah. So. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah, AA works for a lot of people. And a lot of people, it kind of causes more harm. Yeah. And they need to find their own way. I, I'm very much about everybody finds their own way to recovery, whatever that looks like. The interesting thing is, though, when, when we first met him, Dana was horrified. And she said to me... Uh, Something in the lines of, so if you drank, would you have to give all your, your chips back and start again? I said, yeah, and I, that's why I'm, I'm afraid I, I don't want to be in that position. Dana just thought, well, that's, that's horrifying. How can, you, how can you be like sober for five years and then go and get a 24-hour chip and start again? It just feels so wrong. Adi's point is, if you get a 96 out of 100 on a test, nobody says, well, because you didn't get 100, you failed. Yeah, and he's absolutely. Well, and I get yeah. what he's coming at, but for me, for AA, that was, I mean, I'm, I'm very happy. And the phrase I use is I'm a, I'm a, and we say at the end of an AA meeting, I'm a happy, smiling, alcoholic, enjoying sobriety. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you don't want to mess with that. No. And I'm, this is the happiest I've been, I think, well, maybe in my entire life, but it isn't for everyone. It doesn't work for everyone. Most of the people in the United have actually tried AA and you know, they're, not the 10% where it works, even fewer stay sober for any length of time. Yeah, it, it sounds very realistic. And again, taking away any shame, which is awesome. And you know who introduced us is Alex Kaplan, who's yes. all about shame and getting rid of it yep. with his of substance and his short films. So I love people that are working against shame. I think that's one of the worst parts of our culture right now is, is shame. And so we work really hard to destigmatize lots of stuff around here. So. Yep. And well, part of this Signited thing is there's a whole section called F Shame. Oh, I love that. That's really Adid's mantra. Yeah. We yeah. met Alex through Adid. Oh, through Adid. Okay, very good. Is there anything that you'd like to say that I never asked you about or any last words? I just guess I would put in a quick plug for our show on Tuesday and Thursday mornings at 8.30 a.m. Central Time. We go live just to talk about some aspect. Tuesdays, it's just the two of us. And on Thursdays, we bring on a guest. But I think it's a really great way, particularly if you're somebody who is feeling isolated or like you're living with this secret and you don't have anywhere to turn. We're here talking about it and we lived with it for a long time. So we know exactly where you're at. And we would just invite anybody who's looking for a little kind of quick dose to start the day to join us. Yeah, because they're short, right? Yeah, Tuesdays yeah. are 15 minutes and then Thursdays are usually longer because of the guest. A nice 15 minute little dose. I love that. Daily dose. I'll, I'll definitely put your guys' link in the show thank notes you. so everyone thank can you. find that. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming and sharing. I think that's really important work you're doing and thank you for sharing so openly and vulnerably to the world and hopefully other people will take up your example and do it themselves. Well, I hope so. Too. I mean, it's important to remember that, you know, you're not alone. Yeah. There's no shame in it. Right. Asking for help is a huge step forward and you won't be alone yeah. if you ask for that help. Yeah, definitely. And not everybody has to make a podcast and blab it to the whole wide world, but. No, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. You, can, you can talk to someone quietly. And yeah. Won't, won't yeah. You, don't, say a word. you don't have to live stream anything you don't care to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Well, Beth, thanks for having thank us on yes. and for the work that you're doing. Uh, yes, best of luck with everything. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. And to you too. And everyone who's listening, please share this episode with someone that you know that might be struggling with addiction or, or might have a family member that's struggling and see if you could share this with them and give them some hope and some illumination around shame and and addiction and that kind of thing. And go ahead and find Safe Home Podcast on all the social media outlets. We put our podcast on the podcast apps and on YouTube because some people like YouTube better. And we have a Patreon account if you'd like to support us with a small donation once a month at patreon.com slash safe home. I want to give a big shout out and thank you to our three new Patreon members this week, Mar, Claudia Ogin, and Shelly Weber. Welcome and thank you so much for becoming Patreon members. So thank you again for being here. Thank you everyone for listening. And Maz, Dana, and I all want you to stay, stay safe. safe.